We are in just a two-week, this is the second of two weeks, a little mini-series explaining the Lord's Supper and wanting to even wrestle with you as a congregation what we as staff and as elders have wrestled with regarding semper reformato, a phrase we used last week, which means always reforming, used literally centuries ago and framed in this way, that the church is always in need to reform itself to the Word of God. And I can't imagine any Christian not saying that in areas of their life they have reformed themselves to the Word of God, they've thought through things, they've applied things, they've adjusted ways that they live so as to honor God, whether they're growing in knowledge or awareness or conviction of God's Spirit. Semper reformata. Church has long done that. We align ourselves to God's Word. And we want to do that in regard to the Lord's Supper. So I mentioned last week a little bit of context that arguably a concern pastors and theologians and leaders have noticed is that the ordinances of baptism and Lord's Supper have been minimized, and what has kind of filled the gap and taken their place is, is, is worship music. Now again, that isn't trying to pit worship music against the ordinances any more than somebody who's concerned they're eating too much carbohydrates would get rid of bread all entirely. It's about a balanced diet, isn't it? It's about doing things in appropriate balance and moderation. It's thinking through those things. Or even to somebody saying, hey, ice cream is fine, but have you heard of green beans? Kids, yes, green beans. Broccoli. Spinach even. Those things are part of a healthy diet. And have we, in our tradition, unknowingly, minimized the role of the Lord's Supper. That's a concern that's much broader than our own church body, but one that we want to take seriously in and for ourselves. Semper reformata. Always saying, Lord, help us to acknowledge what your word teaches us and to live accordingly. So we last week talked about the concern that the Lord's Supper had been eclipsed by other things. And this week, I just want to explain in just one message what the Lord's Supper is and how it works, what it does. And it's a means of grace. I'll explain that with the text that Marshall just read and a little bit of other context. But before we do, let me just pray. Ask the Lord to minister to us through his word. Father, open our hearts and our minds. Help us to align ourselves to your word. We need the direction of your holy scripture. We need the work of your son by his spirit to live the Christian life. So guide us. We, your people, ask you, our Father, to care for his children so that we would honor you and do what's in the best interest for our own souls as Christians. So help us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have mentioned before that we are arguably living in one of the most biblically illiterate times. And that's not a prize that you want to win nor is that a reason to throw in the towel. That's a reality is that at times we need to just do some teaching and explaining. And so to to kind of buffer our biblical literacy, I'm going to start with giving you three different understandings that Christians hold regarding how Jesus is present in the Lord's Supper. Now again, if these are things that we've been catechized on long ago, I wouldn't need to spend the eight minutes doing this, but, but I think we need to. We need to do that. And notice I said how Jesus is present in the Lord's Supper. How is he 
How does God manifest himself through the Lord's Supper? And in your notes, I've got those three things. I even highlight some key words to help explain it. The first view says that Jesus is bodily present in the Lord's Supper. That God does something to the elements themselves. In fact, you could almost describe this view of the Lord's Supper as miraculous. It takes seriously the biblical statement Jesus makes in 1 Corinthians 11 when Jesus says, this is my body. This is a rigidly literal interpretation of that statement. There's biblical argument for that right there in Jesus' own words. He says, this is my body. He didn't say this is a symbol of my body. Now the Roman Catholic Church thinks actually the elements no longer are merely bread. They just look like bread, for example. That's why you'll notice in the Roman Catholic tradition, there's often a careful handling of the elements. Regularly, they're not passing the body of Christ along the rows. Oftentimes, the priest will literally put it inside the congregant's mouth. It's never even touched by their own hands. Lutherans and Anglicans would say it is actual bread, but that Christ is with the bread. Almost like the analogy of the incarnation, that Jesus is both God and man, so the bread is both bread and Christ. Some, not all, please hear this, but some in this tradition tradition actually claim that the Lord's Supper saves you. But that is clearly outside of what the Bible prescribes. Jesus does the saving, not the supper. That is an unbiblical addition to the Lord's Supper. But be aware. That is one common view, that Jesus is bodily present in the Lord's Supper, that God does something to the elements in a miraculous way. Here's a second view, that Jesus is spiritually present in the Lord's Supper, that God does something to us. If the first view is about a miracle, the second one is an emphasis on a ministry. When when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, as we'll look at in in a minute, that through the Lord's Supper we, quote, participate in the body of Christ and participate in the, in the blood of Christ, he means it to be more than just a memorial. Not less than, but more than. And by that, he means it's the work of the Spirit, that God uses the bread and the wine to be a vehicle, a conduit, to facilitate by His Spirit a connection between us and God. So in this way, Jesus is spiritually present. The last view is that Jesus is normally present in the Lord's Supper. Now that sounds kind of strange, but normally meaning it is not anything more than what Jesus does or connects with us in any other activity we might do. In fact, arguably in this view, the Lord's Supper is something that we're just given the responsibility to do something additional to make it significant. And this view can be called the memorial view. When Christ says in, the the argument for this position is from Christ's own words in 1 Corinthians 11. The same passage where he says, this is my body. Do you hear that Anglican, Roman Catholic, and Lutheran tradition picking up on those words? Same passage he says, do this in remembrance of me. By that, they take it, he means it to be a memorial that we perform. Now, Christ is present in the Lord's Supper, this view would say, in in just the same way he is normally present in any location in the world at all times. 
There isn't anything special about the Lord's Supper other than what we do with it. God isn't doing anything special through the Lord's Supper. Normal does not mean it's normal like brushing your teeth. Normal means Jesus is no more present or at work in the Lord's Supper than he is when you're brushing your teeth. He can work in us through communion, through a song we hear on the radio, through a meeting with Christian sisters or brothers at Panera, or just in our own prayer time as we're brushing our teeth. The Lord's Supper does nothing more significant other than asks us to be responsive in a certain way. What makes the Lord's Supper is that it motivates the Christians to think about Christ. One, one author says that this normal, normal presence view kind of make, treats the Lord's Supper like a Jesus, Jesus flashcards. See bread, think Jesus. It is an opportunity for remembrance and reflection. So those are those views. Bodily, miracle. Spiritually, ministry. Normally, memorial. Now they're not mutually exclusive. Arguably, many of us raised in less Anglican, Roman Catholic, and Lutheran, but more the lower church traditions were raised on the memorial. And I would like to argue that a biblical argument can be made for the spiritual, but that is not excluding the memorial. In the same text where Jesus is talking about the significance of this for our participation in his body, he also says the words, do this remembrance of me. So that is that second view rightly embraces the memorial, the remembrance that Jesus commands, but includes in that 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 this is not just a Jesus flash card that we do, or doesn't just say that this supper is, is just as normal as any Bible study I may go to or any song I listen to on the radio, but is a unique means of grace, a unique conduit where the Spirit is also at work. That's what I'd like to show you from the texts that Marshall just read. The Bible describes the Lord's Supper as a Spirit-empowered nourishment of the Christian. How so? The Lord's Supper is a covenantal meal of God's people. He established this for his people. This isn't just like a regular meal. In fact, as Vera rightly said to her kids, but I hope all of us are listening, it's not just about getting fed and getting, if it was fed, we'd be doing subways, not little wafers. It's not about nourishing the stomach. It's about nourishing the soul. And that requires a kind of bread that can't be cooked in an oven. That requires the body of Christ and the ministry of the Spirit. The Lord's Supper is a covenantal meal, a moment at which Jesus hosts the meal so as to commune with his people by the Spirit. Again, before I show you how Scripture describes the spiritual presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper, I want to add that the spiritual presence of Christ does not make it less than memorial. In fact, we talked about this a bit last week when we looked at 1 Corinthians 11. The supper actually looks in two directions. The Lord's Supper looks back to what Christ has done. Do this in remembrance of me. We're looking back at the work of Christ. Redemption accomplished. But the Lord's Supper also looks forward to what Christ will still do. 
Same text where Jesus says, do this remembrance of me, he says these words, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Redemption accomplished, redemption consummated. I'm holding on in the middle of my spiritual walk to these two railings that I know what God has done, past, finished. And I know what he has promised, hope, confidence. And I'm applying that redemption. That redemption is being applied to me in the present by the Spirit. So the Lord's Supper is looking back and looking forward. And in that moment, the Spirit ministers to my inner being to remind me, to ground me, to seal me, to nourish me on the reality of the gospel. Even in a way that relates to Christ. Look at that first text that Marshall read, 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now, now, now one thing that's helpful is the original Greek, in, the Greek language is different than English in one important way. Greek questions use words that let you know if the response is supposed to be yes or no. And, and, and it's doing this in this sense, letting you know that the, the answer is yes. We, we can do that in English. Maybe you were down, a husband, you're getting your donut, and your wife quietly comes up and says to you, you're not going to eat that donut, are you? Now, notice there's a question there. But does anybody wonder what her answer would be? The answer would be, oh, no, I'm not. Or a parent may say to their kid, you're going to clean your room, aren't you? And notice that there's not a debate. It's not like it's, a, it's I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just interested. I want to know. What's your plan for the day? You know, the reality is it's clearly a question like, you need to clean your room, and I'm going to frame it in a question, but it's being answered for you. The Greek does the same thing with different no or negation words. The different words tell you whether it's a yes or a no, and this is a yes answer. So he's asking this question this way so as to get a response. Like a husband being asked about the donut, you're not going to eat that, are you, is meant to have him respond in the right way. So when Paul says, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? You're supposed to respond in the right. It is a participation in the blood of Christ. It's not a question like, I don't know, Christian, what do you think, Paul says. No, you are participating in Christ through the bread and through the cup. Now, what's that word participation mean? If you've been in the Christian tradition at all, you may have heard the word. The Greek word there is koinonia. Now, it can be used in a pretty casual way of a unique connection, a communion, a sharing of fellowship between brothers and sisters. But when it is used not horizontally between me and a brother or me and a sister, but when it is used between me and God or you and God, it always has this deeper sense that's less me facilitating something and more God facilitating something. It is a deep level connection to Christ. That is, in this statement, Paul is explaining how the Lord's Supper unites us to the resurrected and exalted Christ. 
It's a means of grace, a moment where God unites Himself to us. It is a moment where we share in the benefits of Christ's sacrifice for us. The bread and the cup serve as a vehicle for Christ's presence. There's that spiritually present ministry of the Spirit. Without denying it all, we are remembering and we are looking back and we're reflecting. But the Spirit is also ministering to us. It is not a means of special grace. It's not salvation. But it's a a special means of grace. It's a sign. It's a seal. It's spiritual nourishment. Now, to help you see that I'm not making any of this up, I just, in your notes, put the EFCA statement of faith. That's our denomination, Evangelical Free Church of America. Statement number seven, here's what they say. The Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly, adverbs that would be worth fleshing out, but we won't do today, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not the means of salvation, notice they're knocking down the possibility of some of the traditions that abuse what the Lord's Supper does. But now they say it positively. When celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. How does that happen? Well, that's where those two texts in Ephesians help us a bit more. Like, we get it, we understand. Okay, so there's something unique through the Lord's Supper that's different than singing hymns when brushing my teeth or even in a Bible study with friends or listening to my favorite song. There's something that happens. Okay, but tell me how. Well, Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3 give a glimpse. Look at the language in Ephesians 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, this is the very beginning of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's, it's big cosmic language. If we're reading from verse 1, we just got past his name. And then he gives this statement that really almost summarizes a whole lot of the Christian life and the rest he's going to talk about that probably you and I just potentially blow right past. You'll notice that he mentions these key, these key prepositions, blessed us in Christ, that's our rela- because of our relationship to Christ, and with or by every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Spiritual, in verse 3, is referring to the Holy Spirit. Every time you see it used in Scripture, it is referring to the spiritual work that the Holy Spirit does. So in that sense, notice how this verse gives every member of the Trinity is mentioned. God the Father, His perfect will ordains for the Son to mediate between us and God through His work on the cross, His death, resurrection, ascension. And the Spirit then is the one giving, nourishing, empowering, blessing us in Christ. So spiritual blessing then is referring to what is produced what is brought to our souls by the Spirit. It's vague. Paul knew he was going to explain it in verses 16 to 21 in chapter 3. But you're expecting just by verse 3 that the Spirit blesses us. He gives us something. Even from the heavenly places, something from God is coming to us. 
that God by His Spirit is extending His presence to us. Look at that last text. Ephesians 3, 16-21. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. That's not meant to be magical, but that's meant to be meaningful. That God, according to the riches of His glory, which can't be calculated, has decided to gift you. That's what the word grant means. He's gifting you a strengthening power in your inner being by the Holy Spirit. Why so? Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. I love that. Every brother and sister throughout all time to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Notice this next phrase, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, like a cup being poured into. Fill it up to the brim. You may be filled with the fullness of God. Even that last phrase in verse 20, according to the power at work within us. Now this is the truth that the Word of God wants us to know, but it's hard for us to grasp. Because again, we think pretty mechanically. We, we kind of think like engineers in a scientific world, but there's a dimension of our relationship to God that we aren't dictating or controlling, that God is, that He spiritually feeds us, nourishes us, ministered to us with our connection to Christ through the Holy Spirit. For example, a brother in our church family going, is on hospice. Legs no longer hold his body. He is for weeks now, a couple weeks, three maybe, laid in a bed, cannot stand by himself. Cancer is having its way. And I stand at his bedside just a week before Easter, and i talking to him about life and about death and about family, and sweet brothers in this church have already assigned probably to the, till the millennium to mow his yard, and brothers are fixing his lawnmower for him. I mean, the beauty of this church family. But as I'm talking to him about those deeper things, he says... Words that just encouraged me. He says, I feel such confidence in that my life belongs to Christ. And he said this to me the week before Easter, and he says, how, how fitting to think about death on the eve of the resurrection. The only time he got a little choked up on is when he looked at his wife of 40, 50 years. And he thought about that temporary separation. And I said, when he, you know, he, he's, he was quiet for me, and I said, it, it, it's temporary. And he gathered himself and said, indeed it is. Now what gives a Christian a peace in a situation like that? What, what, what allows them to deal with end of life? A peace that passes all understanding. It is the fact that Ephesians 3, 16 to 21, out of his riches of his glory, God has given that brother a strength 
through his spirit in his inner being to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That he may be filled with the fullness of God even when his legs no longer hold his body. Paul finishes that statement in verses 20 and 21 almost with a little benediction. It's like a doxology. He's got a whole other three chapters to go, but he almost concludes the sermon. Like he, He's hitting on these massive things, and then he says this in verse 20. Now to him, it sounds like we're ending the service. Not yet, kids. 15 minutes. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. What's that power? That's the Spirit. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. In the Lord's Supper, a taste of heaven is given to the Christian in a unique way. A sign, a seal, a nourishment, a comfort, an alignment, redemption applied. Not denying the past or denying the future, but holding those together, Christ, by His Spirit, ministers uniquely to us in the supper. Well, let me end with just some thoughts on application. How should the Lord's Supper minister to God's people at Hope Evangelical Free Church? If word and sacrament or word and ordinances are the means of grace through which God comes down to us, then we should make sure that they are made significant in our corporate worship. We've talked about the what, what the Lord's Supper is. Let's ask the how and the who. How should the Lord's Supper be practiced? Since it is a means of grace, not special grace, but a special means of grace, a nourishment, then arguably it needs to be given more priority. And that's something for you to do and for your church leaders to do, your pastors. Every Christian needs to understand what the Lord's Supper is, how it works, and even honor its place in their spiritual life. That's why we decide to pause and explain it to you. Because you need to understand what the Lord's Supper is and how it works. At the same time, every church needs to make it a priority in their regular worship gatherings. Our posture toward the Lord's Supper should reflect its identity as both a covenantal meal of family, but also a means of grace. When you prepare for the Lord's Supper, what are you preparing to do? Some people treat it like a funeral. They wear black. It's just their confession of sin. Others treat it like a confessional. Maybe others like a birthday party. Yay, Jesus. How about you? Many in our tradition get snagged on that statement at the end of 1 Corinthians 11 about self-examination. This happens commonly in the memorial view, the normally present view, where it's kind of on us. It's the Jesus flashcard, and we kind of do our self-examination. And that's not all entirely wrong, but the self-examination is about disunity horizontally. It's disunity among brothers and sisters, not between you and God. The Lord's Supper is the means where God ministers to you. And if self-examination is done, it is actually probably done before the meal at all. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's rebuking these wealthy Christians 
business owners, landowners, who they aren't working the nine to five job or in Rome, Roman days, 10 to 12 hours. Church would have been in the evening. They were on a Roman calendar, which was 10 day weeks, not a seven. So the Lord's day would have fallen on a normal work day. So the service would have been in the evening. The wealthy that they can stop by in the morning, make sure fields are being done, check a few books, and they can head over to the wealthy person's house that's already set with a uh, the feast for the Lord's Supper, and they're sitting there waiting, checking their little Apple watches, waiting for the other people to come. They're like, how long are these guys work? Does that guy have a 10-hour shift today? And they're like, boy, that bread's looking kind of good. If we ate some of the bread, it'd lower the number of flies. What do you think? Should we jump in? Paul's like, that is not your supper. He's like, I don't care if you paid for it. I don't care if it's in your house. If that's the Lord's Supper, then you wait to the poorest of poor, day labor. He shows up at 10 p.m. You don't touch it till he's there because he has just as many rights to it as you do. That's not your supper. That's the Lord's Supper. Again, notice that's the self-examination that Paul's talking about. Michael Horton summarized it better than even I could. He says this, the Lord's Supper is a meal for the weak, not a reward for the strong. That's a good statement. The Lord's Supper is a meal for the weak, not a reward for the strong. It is God's moment where he nourishes you. So it's a family meal, which means you come prepared. You're expecting to love your brothers and sisters. If there is disunity, you're not taking care of that Sunday morning. You're calling them on Thursday night. It's Lord's Supper. I'm going to honor the sacredness and the unifying nature of that meal. And if I've got a conflict with my brother or my sister, I'm going to call them on Thursday. Say, hey, can we get together on Saturday? Because we've got to work this out. But it's also a vertical meal. It's a means of grace where God ministers to us by his spirit, reminding us of his work on the cross for us, his love for us. It's a moment where he unites himself to us. Some might say that the importance of the Lord's Supper means we should do it every week. Fair enough. We could. That's something as a congregation we could wrestle with. Calvin wanted it that way. He got them pretty much to go every other week, but most of the time they did it once a month. He thought it should be every single Sunday, and some traditions do that, and they're not wrong to. The Bible gives no command regarding the Lord's Supper other than explaining its importance. Some traditions do it weekly, some quarterly, some monthly, as we do. Every week rightly sees the importance of the Lord's Supper, but monthly also guards against it becoming too ritual, too trivialized. We want to continue to practice it monthly, but make our Lord's Supper Sunday more focused on the supper than I think that we have. Well, last question, who can participate in the Lord's Supper? Because it's a covenant meal, a primary requirement is that it's a meal for believers. It can and should be denied to members who are under formal discipline. But again, that is a way of pursuing repentance. You don't, when you send your kid to their room, are you harming them or forming them? It also should logically follow baptism, since baptism is the ceremony of initiation for the Christian. The Lord's Supper is that ceremony of nourishing continuation. 
The Lord's Supper is properly officiated by a pastor elder, but actually involves the whole congregation. It's not merely a vertical communion, it is a horizontal one. So as we've wrestled with this as elders and as a staff, here's a couple tweaks that we want to make to prioritize the Lord's Supper here at this church. Number one, we want to make Lord's Supper Sunday more focused and expansive on the supper. We don't want to hinder its work as a means of grace. Both as a memorial and as a ministry, we want it to be not something that's just shoved in there, which in our tradition it has a tendency to do. It's a quick add-on or thrown in. We want, we want to give space for this to work, this once-a-month activity and the second, Monday, uh, second Sunday of every month, we want to give more space. We want to have 15, 20 minutes, a third of our service having some reflection, time of repentance, of celebration, to allow the Spirit to help us reflect on and participate in the cup and the bread. That means that we will, on those Sundays, whatever series we are in, we will break for that one Sunday from that series, and we will have a shorter sermon time. Instead of being 30-ish minutes, it'll be about 15. Again, that's not trying to minimize the word. It's trying to balance our carbs and our proteins. And we've also thought that it might be healthy as a church body on those communion Sundays to have something like a, a reflection on one of the Psalms. When's the last time you heard a series on the Psalms? If you did a series on the Psalms, uh, by the time our first graders finished that series, they'd be freshmen in college. Uh, so the reality is we just, all, we just often avoid those. Those are the books of corporate worship. Those were the songs that the church would sing. So to have a Sunday where we focus on a psalm and reflect on its truth, perfect for uh, the fellowship of the saints and a communion Sunday, to have focused time on the Lord's Supper, and then the very next Sunday to return again to our series and our regular normal practices seems fitting. We want to use these Sundays to have a testimony, to have sharing among the body of Christ, to encourage one another. We will encourage you to fellowship more and relate. You're somebody you don't know. Say, hey, remember, this isn't about you in a prayer closet. That's part of it. It's also about you and your brothers and sisters. Use this Sunday to have the Spirit open your eyes to a brother or a sister, to commune with them as well. We want to invite members to share in the serving of the Lord's Supper while we'll be officiated by a pastor elder. We want the elements to be distributed in a way that reflects the body of Christ. So we even have on our webpage now, you can sign up to serve and help serve the Lord's Supper. Men, women, even, even those who are younger, as long as they're members of the body of Christ, we want you to, this is a family meal. Who wouldn't be refilling grandma's water and grabbing a fork for a younger sister? Like, who wouldn't be doing that? It would be the whole family would be doing that. And finally, we want to strive to let God's assigned means of grace, the Lord's Supper, to nourish the souls of our church family. We want it to be able to do. We don't want to hinder what God is doing by His Spirit. We want to believe that it's more than flesh and blood, there's a spiritual reality that Christ ministers through. He has assigned this through word and through ordinance, and we want to make sure we're balanced in that way. That's really not a huge change. That's really not a major shift. Other than 
trying to do a little semper reformata. To let God's ordained means of grace be unhindered and functioning in the body of Christ. Next Sunday is the second Sunday of the month. So I want to take these two weeks to explain some of the ways that we've wanted to have a more robust view of such a practice. And next Sunday, we'll do so. Let's pray. Father, help us as your children to always be reforming our lives and our wills and even our practices to your word. Father, let us be a church that receives all the means of grace that you have given to us to nourish our souls. Help us to unhindered from allowing your spirit through the work of your son to be the main pastor of this church. And thank you for your word, which draws us back to what is true and what is right and what is good. So be with us, Father, as we try to be a church that is faithful and fruitful in believing that the Spirit, not just our own wills and emotions, not our own rhetoric or our power or our skills, not by might nor by power, but by your Spirit do you work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.